This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello, this is Ayana Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we are speaking with Rosemary Gladstar. Rosemary is a pioneer in the herbal movement and has been called the godmother of American herbalism. She began over 35 years ago developing herbal formulas in her shop, Rosemary's Garden, in Sonoma County, California. She is the founder of the California School of Herbal Studies, the oldest running herb school in the United States, and is the organizer of the International Herb Symposium and the annual New England Women's Herbal Conference. She is the author of numerous books, including the bestseller Herbal Healing for Women, the Storybook Herbal Healing Series, Herbal Remedies for Vibrant Health, and the Science and Art of Herbalism, a comprehensive home study course. She has taught extensively throughout the United States and worldwide at venues as varied as backyard gardens, native villages, garden clubs, universities, and hospitals. She is also the co-founder of Traditional Medicinals Tea Company. Rosemary's greatest passion has been the work of United Plant Savers, a nonprofit organization that Rosemary founded in 1994 and is currently president. United Plant Savers is dedicated to the conservation and cultivation of at-risk North American medicinal plants and to preserving botanical sanctuaries across the U.S. and to help preserve the land that these precious native species thrive on. Rosemary lives and works from her home, Sage Mountain Herbal Retreat Center, a 500-acre botanical preserve in central Vermont. Hello, Rosemary. Hi, Ayana. It is so difficult to know where to begin this conversation, considering you've spanned so many passions and projects. And I, like I'm sure many of the people listening, became aware of you and fell in love with you because of your contributions to herbalism, to helping people heal with plants. But your work is just as much about healing and protecting the earth 
alongside plants and through your connection with plants. And we owe you huge gratitude for laying the groundwork for plant restoration and rewilding. Thank you. Yeah, you know, that transition happened actually when I, in a big way, I mean, of course, I I don't think it's possible to work with plants on any level without having a deep connection to the earth because they're so of the earth. I mean, they, every time you lean to look at one or pick one or bless one or be blessed by one, you're, you're bowing to the earth. And there's these old woodcuts and old images that go way back into the hundreds of years ago where it shows, you know, the plant lovers, the the herbalist kneeling to the earth. And that image, I mean, is so potent. But that transition for me actually happened when I left the West Coast. I had been born and raised in Northern California, that little town, Sebastopol, actually, where I grew up and did so much of my work. And I was kind of the epitome of what I call the village herbalist or the community herbalist, you know, working every day in my little herb shop and teaching and taking people out on herb walks. And all that was in the 70s and the 80s. And I had grown up in that town, so I was very infused with people everywhere. And when I moved to the East Coast to Vermont, I really didn't know a soul. I moved to this wild mountain that is fairly remote. And I was also in unfamiliar territory as far as the environment went. You know, I had to kind of start over learning so many of the plants. And it was really in those walks in the woods when I began to realize that so many of the native plants weren't here. And that was like a question to me, kind of singing from the earth, where are they? If they're not here, where are they? And so that began the process actually of my environmental work, that my work with the conservation of medicinal plants. Well, although I am itching to talk about conservation and restoration of our ecosystems, I think it's important to begin with how we really as a global community found ourselves in this predicament of extreme biodiversity loss. Clearly, there was a great disconnection between plants and people. And I'm wondering, when do you see the shift starting and what are the root causes of this severance? Uh, I mean, it's a fabulous question. I'm sure there's as many answers for it as people that you ask. But I I mean, I think it's probably been going on far longer than we even can date. But I really look at it after World War II. It seemed to me there was just an enormous shift. Before World War II, there there was still a lot of small, diverse farms. People still had a very strong connection to the land. Even in towns and cities, people still had gardens that they cultivated. And so, you know, after World War II, there was this major shift in the whole chemical revolution that happened. And, you know, there's some speculation, which I think is accurate, that there was a lot of big companies that just had an excess of terrible chemicals that they needed to find things to do with them. And so they started turning it into our food supplies and into our medical system. And I was actually born right after World War II. So that shift happened. I grew up in a small dairy farm, but even in my own lifetime, living on that dairy farm in Sonoma County, I watched farmer after farmer be put out of business. I saw the towns and the malls start stretching over into the countryside. It was actually heartbreaking and devastating for me to see that. But on a bigger level, I think it was you know just permeating our entire culture. And because our culture has such a huge influence in world culture. It was making a difference worldwide in a very negative way. So people began actually to not trust natural foods and their garden foods and definitely not trust natural medicine and started really believing what, you know, the chemical companies were saying that the chemical revolution, that pill, that pharmaceutical would 
save the woes of the world. And, you know, I chuckle sometimes and laugh if it only was that simple. If you could take a pill and cure every illness and not have a disease, but exactly the reverse happens when we become disconnected from nature in those most basic ways of food and medicine and our spiritual food, you know, our source of inspiration that comes from nature, we become incredibly isolated and lonely and we do the horrible things that we see happening. But, you know, again, that disconnect went on long before that. You know, when we even saw the first settlers when they arrived on the North American continent, they arrived in a place that was still, from all historical accounts, people were living in harmony with nature. And immediately those settlers started chopping down the trees and killing off the animals and, you know, the buffalo and the passenger pigeons. So I think that isolation probably tracks back, back a long time and maybe to when cultures went from honoring the feminine and then, you know, putting into place the more patriarchal society. So it probably tracks way back. <laughs> yeah, it seems there is a long history that has led to this disconnection from the life source. If you've been born in Western culture, you've probably been conditioned to understand the world almost purely analytically. Animism, which recognizes a spiritual connection to the plants and animals and soil, is usually thought of as being naive. So how would you encourage people who long to break out of this official position of brain chauvinism, as Stephen Buhner calls it, to find that openness to nature's omniscience and to begin to listen to plant teachers? Well, I think, you know, spending time in the garden and in nature, anytime you're with plants, they open you up. You know, I want to say, I think this revolution for people reconnecting with nature is actually happening in a great way. And I think it's happening worldwide. I mean, people are lonely without other creatures in our lives, you know, the microbes in the soil and the sky beams in the sky and all the parts of the world that we don't see. And even within us, all the microbes in ourselves that we made into enemies and tried to kill off to the demise of our own health and well-being. Without this incredible diversity of spirit, we're lonely. You know, we're soulless, actually. We look at our culture right now and what you see are lonely people seeking that connection. So I think the revolution of returning to the mother is happening. And so I think that each time we go out to nature, each time we kiss the earth, each time we open our arms to the sky, those beings just flow into us. So the more and more we can take down the walls that separate us from the natural world, form communities with people who speak a common language and keep that language continuing out of those circles so the circle grows larger and larger. It's one of the beauties of these big conferences that happen, you know, that it's not like you're just preaching to the choir, you're preaching to the choir and it's a beautiful large song and it goes out and it gathers others in because the music is so good, if you know what I'm saying. I also think, you know, that using the the natural things in nature that were there that help us step out of our world, like the plant spirits. And those can be plant spirits that are very strong, that are, you know, you ingest them and they really actually help you have conversations with the goddess and the gods and spirit beings. But also just the plants themselves, when we begin to converse with those, like all gardeners really talk to their plants. They have a language when they go out to harvest plants and talk with them. And the more that we permit that language to happen, the more we begin the conversation with these beings that support us. Oh, absolutely. And in my own experience, 
I remember always having a love for nature and feeling awe when I would visit, but it took time to build a relationship. It's not something that can be learned from a book or in a strategic way. You know, after a while, and it didn't take very long, I really started to feel the earth speaking back. You know, not even in a language that I understood, but it was a feeling of embodiment. That's so beautiful what you just said. And the thing that struck me was that it really didn't take long. You know, it's true. You have to spend time to develop any relationship. You know, you have this sparkle when you first meet people, but to really develop a deep relationship where you begin to reveal intimacy and deep feelings and where you feel that oneness with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. And so that when that happens and you have that sense, that feeling in being with the plants and in being with nature, then you just want to come home to that. And so that's what happens. That's why I see these little circles that keep growing and growing. And, you know, in, in my lifetime, which I'm fairly young still, you know, I'm, I always laugh and say I'm just like a young tree, you know, in my mid-60s now. And I've seen this revolution change really healthcare in the United States. It needs to be changed a lot more. But to see something like this happen in 40 years even is remarkable, I think, don't you? It's remarkable to to see how hungry people are for the change, even if it's not all in focus yet. Yeah. And once we begin to walk regenerative pathways and things come into blossom, we will have a momentum that carries us forward in an alliance of earth mm-hmm. renewers and earth defenders. And I'm so inspired by the leap of faith you must have taken to ignite the movements you have in a time when herbalism and environmental stewardship were largely in a coma. And you you overcame the inertia with your daily devotional action and helped to blaze those neural networks for all of yeah. us. Thank you for recognizing that. You know, it's it's interesting. Sometimes when people ask me, how I accomplished the small things I did. It was like, I never really thought of accomplishing anything. It's just, there was something that needed to be done. And so you jump in to do it. And talking to people recently, some wonderfully brilliant young people about activism. And I think you just have to be active. You know, you have to step forth for what you believe and not think about what the end cause or the result or if it will work or not work. You never know that when you jump in to do something. But it's like forming United Plan Savers. It was it was really just formed over a question. The question was, is there an issue happening right now with the plants? And the more we ask that question, like, are these plants really asking for our help? Do we need to be more conscious about how we're worshiping them and using them and being successful using them in our medicines and companies and stuff? And every single herbalist I asked, whether they were a practitioner, a medicine maker, a business person, they all said, yes. We think that there's an issue here and we think we need to address it. And so then we just got in and we're active. You know, we stumbled along. We, did, we didn't do everything perfectly. We didn't have this huge plan. But again, working together, I think that connectedness of when people come together and you have a bigger mission in place other than how you're going to succeed. And especially when you take on something like working for the plants. I mean, you have millions of plants that are just, they're like a incredibly colorful, radiant powerful army behind you pushing you onwards so in everything i think it's just when people look to how they can have an impact it can be very small but it can be very powerful it can have implications that we don't even imagine like 
you know, I think about myself and just growing up on a dairy farm and really opening my first store was not thinking, oh, I'm going to create some herbal revolution here in Sonoma County. It was, I just want to make herbs available in my community. And it was that simple. And then, you know, you let the dream unfold. The dream kind of works through you. And you know that old saying is you just be a hollow weed and you let the spirit work through you. I think that's a good way to work, actually. <laughs> I think that helps, helps us all a lot, don't you? Yes, I do. The tasks at hand are so big and we can't do it alone. It's much less daunting to know there is a force of collective unity and that we have 10 million ally species who all want the same harmony we want and who have been doing it long before the clever apes showed up. So, you know, they are the wise ones when it comes to working together. I buy the nicest things from a supermarket store Vitamin land in marzipan And I know just what they're all for I've organized my useless life In a way I've never done before Even visit the dentist now But I've got no time for silly chitter chatter I'm on my way Cause while my blood's still warm and my mind doesn't matter I'm hoping to stay Because I've got a thing about seeing my grandson grow old I just can't wait to see that city on the moon With air-conditioned gardens That'll play your favorite tune I'll see my feet upon that street if it's the last thing that I do. Even sweep the roads to be there, but I've got no time for silly chitter chatter. I'm on my way, cause while my blood's still warm and my mind doesn't matter, I'm hoping to stay, because I've got a thing about seeing my grandson grow old. Oh, 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 oh. Along with climate change, habitat loss is a leading cause of the rapid extinction rates. And I want to read a few statistics just to put this land use conversion into context. According to the World Wildlife Fund, around 50% of the world's habitable land has already been converted to farmland. This area is still expanding. It is predicted that in developing countries, a further 120 million hectares of natural habitats will be converted to farmland to meet demands for food by 2050. This will include land with high biodiversity value. On top of habitat loss due to clearing and unsustainable agricultural practices, we're seeing 12 million hectares of land lost each year due to desertification. Specifically in the U.S., The Forest Service projects that within the next 50 years, more than 50 million acres of forest land will be converted to developed uses. So, although these are harrowing statistics, we don't need to be debilitated by them. 
we can use this knowledge to orient our efforts to the contrary. Through the United Plant Savers Organization, you've been able to confront these hard realities and take action for the earth. So would you mind sharing the mission statement of United Plant Savers and tell us how UPS is approaching the trends of habitat loss and expansion of agriculture? Thank you. Well, our mission statement is to preserve and conserve plants for future generations of plant lovers and the earth itself. I mean, even more important than for our use is that these plants are here into perpetuity. And it's also about preserving the land, which is a huge task. On the other hand, we can make such a difference. So one of the things that United Plant Savers has done is we have a sanctuary project where we have over 6,000 acres now that our members, so these individuals have put into sanctuary and UPS sanctuary means that we take at least a part of our land and convert it back to wilderness in whatever way we can. You know, that might just be letting, if you live in town, so the land doesn't have to be large acreages. It could, your sanctuary could be a backyard. It can be a 500 acre preserve. You know, it, it's not about size. It's about intention, that intent that we have to see our land as sacred and to put wildness back in it through the wild plants. When you do that, when you start to plant the natives back, they invite the natives back. So you start to get you see it visibly happening and it doesn't, again, doesn't take years. It can happen within the first year that you plant native species back. You get native pollinators, you get the native butterflies, more frogs and the wildlife comes back to it, you know? And so the wildlife may be just floating, migrating birds, or they might be the insects or whatever. But in the last 10 years, we supported our members in having over 6,000 acres. And then UPS was gifted right when we were first founded, which is 20 years ago now, um, we were gifted by two remarkable people a large sum of money, and we were able to purchase a 370-acre botanical sanctuary in southeastern Ohio, which is one of our most biodiverse, rich areas that we have. And that's not a lot of acreage when you put it in context again to those 50 million acres, et cetera. But it's the model that it creates. You know, it's in the middle of Appalachia, and this is the coal mining area. Here we have this beautiful, thriving sanctuary that's filled with native plants that live there just naturally, you know, and they need a little protecting for sure from, you know, local poachers and deer and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's a lot about empowering individuals to do whatever it is that we can do small or large that makes a difference. One of the biggest things I think that UPS did was called attention to the fact that we need to be stewards, not just users and not just consumers of plants, but stewards of our of our great plant community and in stewardship, which I love that word actually stewardship, you know, it's, a, it's about this kind of um, give and take relationship where um, we're, we're all tending one another. So when we become stewards of healing plants, which we really promote with our membership is we we're using them, we're growing them, you know, we're taking, you know, making our companies, making our medicines from them, but more than anything, we're, also minding their habitat and their growth and their, you know, ensuring that they're here again for that long-term mission for into, uh, you know, for the seventh generation and beyond. So it's been very successful. You know, it's one of those small grassroots and I love that term grassroots because here, you know, we are definitely a grassroots organization completely concerned with the plants and about the plants, but it's a great model because with a small group of people, 
we made a big difference in the whole herbal industry. If you look back even 20, 25 years ago, there was just no mention of plant conservation in the herbal community or the business world. And today it's a major topic. You know, it comes up always in big events and small events at herb schools. And even within the industry, it's become uh, much more kosher to be supporting organic farming and the organically cultivated plants rather than to use, especially the, the wild and indigenous plants that are very sensitive in the, the native habitats. Oh, absolutely. Every herbal event that I've been to in the past few years has addressed ethical wildcrafting and overharvesting. Coming into herbalism, especially from the chemical pharmaceutical side, it's really easy to think it's all harmless. But we have to go deeper and see that in exchange for nurturing and healing us, we have to take care of them as well and get over this resource extraction mentality that we inadvertently bring to herbalism. Yeah, Ayana, that's so perfect because really that's really about what every one of these conversations comes home to is that that stewardship of one another, that as we learn to take care of our garden patches, the earth under our feet, our plant communities, and these kinds of tasks are actually joyful. They can have huge sadness, you know, when you look out over places that have been devastated. But when you start that restoration process and you start that educational process, it can be so renewing to the spirit. And I think in the herbal community, we see this, especially these young people just stepping up in a grand way to embrace that message. I mean, that's what gives me more hope than anything else, you know, and it can be very hard to keep hopeful in a time when there's so much devastating news and we have access to so much devastating news. You know, it's one of the wonders and one of the horrors of, you know, the internet, that huge communication system that we are kept on track with all of this stuff. And it's very empowering, but it also can be very disempowering. But the, the hope for me is when I travel and I meet group after group of vital young people so willing to step up and take these responsibilities on. And sometimes it's a really joyful way. Like, so plant stewardship is joyful. And one of the hopeful messages, at least in this country, it's not true in other parts of the world, is all of the plants that we're focusing on, at least as herbalists, you know, we still have them here. They're not extinct. So we have an opportunity to make a difference and we can see that we are. Um, we can see how, again, how a small group of as Margaret Mead's famous words, I think they're the words I live by, never doubt that a small, thoughtful group of concerned citizens can change the world. And as that message grows and grows, which I'm very hopeful that it will, I think we will start to see the rehabilitation of our planet again. I think restoration is a beautiful way to activate our hope and celebrate our agency. And we have to constantly revisit the question of what are we capable of today, this year, and this lifetime. And as movements grow and as historical precedents raise the bar of what's possible, a worldwide restoration of Earth's ecosystems is our call to action. And my hope is that the life force of plants and trees will break through the concrete and grow through the oil spills and where our individual actions may be small and local, we can set change on its course. Quietly Like the breeze that blows the olive tree 
The wind of change has come down from the hills to lead me home again through the last mile of sunshine. As easily as the moon makes patterns on the lifeless lake, man grinds the flowers of the field beneath his heels. And you wonder if he feels love or even boredom. But my friend, the wind of change is asking questions. small when they're walking tall and the wind of change is trembling could it be that his smile is Just another kind of frown Because he knows the world is finally falling down And going back to dust And if we trust Those men who trample on the grass Emptiness is all that we can ask for. I'm wondering what some of the plants are that you are protecting through United Plant Savers, how they were chosen, and what's being done to protect and nourish them. Well, a great example is our poster child, Golden Seal. Golden Seal is one of our great contributions of the North America to, to world medicine. You know, and it from the very beginning when the early settlers, I mean the native peoples here used it as a um wonderful plant for all kinds of infections and rashes and also it was so plentiful they used it as a dye to dye their clothing this beautiful kind of golden green that it dyes um, and then the pharmaceutical industry used it. it's very potent in alkaloids hydrastine and canadensis um, hydrastine and berberine particularly and those have 
uh, so the plant has been exported all over the world. And even back in the 1800s, the eclectic doctors at that time and the harvesters were noticing it was in decline, but definitely through the 1920s and 1930s, even when herbalism wasn't popular in this country, it was being dug up in massive amounts and shipped out of this country because it was being used, as I mentioned, by the pharmaceutical industry. So in my lifetime, when I first learned about golden seal, I was living in California. I had never seen it in the woods and you know, had no idea whether it was plentiful or not plentiful. I was that disconnected from it. But when I moved to New England, I started looking for it and we were in its native range. We should have found it here where I live in Vermont. I never found it at all in any of my long hikes in the woods. And then I, as I read up and researched, I realized that it's actually in demise. It, um, and almost all of it, I think 10% of it 20 years ago was coming from cultivated sources. So like 90% or more was coming from the wildcrafted sources. So when we first formed United Plant Savers, we chose golden seal as kind of our iconic plant. It was hardy, it's robust. It grows throughout the whole Eastern and Southeastern range, you know, and it was just so medicinal. And all of us who use plant medicine had been using it. And so we started this project. We got a lot of the companies behind us to, you know, try to turn it around to make the majority of golden seal coming from cultivated sources, because actually it's quite easy to cultivate. And we were hoping within 10 years that we would meet that goal, but actually within three years time, majority of the golden seal was starting to come from cultivated sources. When I talk about the companies, I'm not talking about the large pharmaceutical companies or the herb companies that supply places like Walmart and stuff. We're talking about the herbal industry that was farmed by herbalists and you know, still are really, they're large companies, but they're very ethical products. All of those companies were completely behind the organic cultivation project. And then we also started replanting projects. For years and years and years, we gave away thousands of golden seal roots to our members. So being a member of United Plant Savers, I've planted thousands of little golden seal rootlets in my woodlands, not for reharvesting, but just to help reestablish populations. That brought up some questions, you know, among biologists and stuff about the geones of the plants that you're planting in the areas, but nonetheless, we have native golden seal growing in our woodlands and all around my house. I have beautiful patches of it. So we have hundreds and hundreds of members who've been planting golden seal. So, you know, golden seal is, it's not prolific by any means in the wild, but it's starting to come back because, and there's other places in the world also who are growing golden seal now as well. And, you know, it brings up that question when you grow a plant outside of its bioregion, does it change the energetics? And well, I think both theoretically, you know, just thinking about that and also when you do the research and studies, it does change it somewhat. It doesn't mean that it makes it worse or anything. It just changes just like how we each are reflected in the bioregion that we were born in. We'd still be the same people if we were maybe raised somewhere else, but we would be different. But, you know, I always try to remind people that when we talk about native plants, you have to determine how far back you want to go to determine what's native or not, you know, because plants have been traveling around this globe since the very beginning. Most plants are very adept at traveling. They're not necessarily confined to one area as much as we might like to in our lifetime keep them there. There's a lot of levels to that, but so, and there's other ones as well. One that we're working on right now is an herb that's called Foss unicorn root or Chamellarian luteum, which in all the herb books was always listed as being an amazing plant, one of the best plants we have for fertility. And even in my herb book for women that was written in 1993, the year before United Plant Savers was formed, 
I wrote all about unicorn root and how to use it in recipes and stuff, you know, within the next two or three years, as we began to identify the at-risk plants, false unicorn root is at the top. It's one of the most at-risk in its native environment. And that one, we're having challenges figuring out how to grow it and cultivate it. So we're investing in more farmers and organic growing of this plant so that we can supply the market from organic sources. So to me, that's the real key is supporting small organic farms to grow high quality medicinal plants. And ideally in this country, not that I'm against farming in other countries by any means or supporting people around the world, but our own organic farmers need support here. You know, I look at the American farmer as another endangered species and we need farmers who are here breeding this powerful good medicine to us so that we don't have to rely on the wild sources. Long term, probably not in my lifetime, perhaps in your lifetime, we might be able to look back at the wild and be able to to use from the wild. But that may never happen unless our population really gets smaller because with the population increases the way that we are, wilderness cannot really take care of us anymore. We have to learn to take care of ourselves in relationship to wilderness. I agree. Humanity is too out of balance to rely on the wildlands. As we speak, we are experiencing daily extinctions in the order of 200 species a day, mostly due to habitat destruction. So we need extraordinary measures to counteract it, and extraordinary sacrifices of personal desires in favor of collective desires. But that aside, a lot of restoration efforts are directed not at preserving habitat from development, but on combating invasive species, which are kind of a scapegoat that takes the heat off the invasion of humans. I'm not saying to ignore all plant invasions, because some are really damaging and native species need protection. But it's important to put in perspective that ecosystems have always been in flux, and plants have been traveling around the globe since they evolved on Earth. Well, and you know, where I live and where you live, if you go out and you just stand and look and feel like here in Vermont, just 10,000 years ago, everything was entirely different because we had a glacier that was five miles high that sat on these 14,000 foot mountains and ground them down into little hills. And every species practically that lives here now was not here even 10,000 years ago, which you know, is a drop in the bucket in the time of the world. I'm really happy to see people reframing, at least thinking about these invasive plants, because quite interesting, some of the most invasive plants are the most powerful medicines for the diseases that people are having right now. And also, when you look at this, what we call the war on invasives, oftentimes the battle that's brought on them is terrible. There's a wonderful new book that came out, I think you'd be very interested, called The War on Invasives. It's written by a young woman in Oregon, actually, who was working doing some restoration work and was hired by the state of Oregon and was just actually shocked and had to really reframe this whole question of what she was doing because it definitely wasn't restoring habitat. But I think, again, when we travel back with plants, when we do what our ancestors were able to do really readily because they were in this relationship with plants all the time, when we travel back with the plants, we realize that like everything else in the world has its time, the, the community shift and change, I mean, obviously, there is something going on that's much bigger than us, and we can't really begin to understand it when we think with the glasses that we have on right now. It's almost like we have to take those down and say, so what are you doing here, really? You know, why are you moving in here? Like, one of the things, and I can't 
really say if this is true or not, but it was a Matthew Wood, who's a brilliant herbalist and one of my dear friends. We were talking about the medicinal properties of purple loosestrife. I don't know if purple loosestrife has gotten a hold on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, it was introduced as a garden plant and it's stunningly beautiful. But like a lot of loosestrife, it's really invasive and it's took over the wetlands so that sometimes in the late summer wetlands that should be full of cattails and the arrowroots and all of these different diverse plants will be completely covered in this gorgeous purple flower. So it has, of course, the wildflower societies and biologists is up in arms about it, which is understandable. On the other hand, here we have one of the most incredible medicinal plants that you can have for respiratory function and the immune system. And it's moving in, you know, kind of, again, doing not only what it does for us, but perhaps working on some level for the earth that we haven't figured out yet. But what Matthew pointed out, he says the only place that he ever sees that purple loose strife becomes invasive is where it's been disturbed wetlands. And I started noticing in our own area. So I live in a big wildlife corridor. We have a 500 acre plant sanctuary here that borders 26,000 acres. So we have like 14 miles that you can walk without a road, a house or a fence. It's pretty remarkable. So I can observe nature here quite well. And it's actually true what he said, at least in my area, that where purple strife is coming in is in disturbed areas. And so a lot of times these very tenacious invasive plants, they move in to areas that need healing. And they're probably the most restorative. Look at dandelion and burdock. Look at chickweed. Look at amaranth. And, you know, all of these plants that we tend to think of as really weedy, they're some of our absolute best medicine for tenacious long-term illnesses. You know, I'm not suggesting that every invasive plant, that we just let them go wild. I, I don't believe that at all, actually. I think we have to have some stewardship and some mindfulness. It's just like us right now. You know, we've gotten completely out of control, the human race, and we need to have boundaries and we need to have some restrictions in our growth. But we have value and importance and grandeur and passion, you know, and we are part of this huge living cycle. And so I look at these invasive plants in much the same way. The other one that I want to recommend for you to read, if you're interested in this, is Invasive Plant Medicine. So War on Invasives, it just came out. I think it was published by um, Timber Press, maybe. And then Invasive Plant Medicine, written by a wonderful naturopathic Vermont doctor, actually, Timothy Scott. And he's exploring the medicinal powers of these plants. And again, he's not suggesting that we don't control them and manage them. Um, they're hardy, and so they're going to find their place in the environment. I think that there's a greater consciousness that this earth has and these plants have, and that we really need to ally with that more and not always be creating battles. And especially when I look at these plant populations, I mean, we wouldn't have any dandelions here. And dandelions are one of our not only best survival foods, it's great medicine for our bodies right now and also for our souls. They're about tenacity, holding fast, surviving no matter how toxic it gets.
flower what you don't know is despite your setbacks you still America, where many people have access to all sorts of exotic medicines. People can walk into health food stores or even Walmarts all over the country and buy medicine that's only found deep within the Amazon. Although this seems very tantalizing, we're not shown the true costs of this convenience on the labels. The fossil fuels for transportation, the over-harvesting in sensitive areas, the indigenous people who are losing their cultural medicine to far-off places. So I'd love for you to point this spotlight on our weedy superstars here in North America. What are some medicinal herbs that grow vigorously around all of us? And could you explain why it's actually beneficial ecologically to harvest these robust plants? Well, you know, the origin of the word herb even is weed. It started off the old Anglo-Saxon was woad. Well, wart, little King Arthur, when he was a little boy, uh, Merlin calling him little wart. It was little wart or herb, like W-O-R-T. Wart, woad, weed, and herb. So really, our strongest medicines and the medicines that collect around where people grow, naturally, they come to us, are the weeds, these weedy species. And they nourish us not only as food and medicine, but also, that, as I mentioned, that very strong spiritual component of tenacity of the ability to be able to hold fast when the winds blow hard. I think that's one of the things I see right now about our culture is we don't have hold fast. Those stipes that hold us to the rocks are very weak. 
And it's in part because the food that we eat and also our spiritual beliefs don't ground us deeply. So just really the mere fact of eating those rooty, weedy plants fosters tenacity, not only in a phys physical sense through the physicality of those constituents that we're eating, but also in the very essence of who those plant creatures are, those beings. And, you know, really, in truth, and this goes back through thousands of years of history of people's use of plants, all of our everyday illnesses, it was those weedy species that really worked well. Those, those native sensitive woodland plants, the ones that were a little bit more exotica, you know, they're more reserved for those things that are more rare and uncommon. And one of the things right now that we all need to consider is that when we hear about some fantastic new herb that's just been discovered to have more antioxidants than any other plant on the earth, it's almost always driven by company research. You know, I mean, it's not that it's not true. There's often good research behind it, but it's sales propaganda. Our United Plants mission is to be conscious of what you are buying. That if you do nothing else other than just be conscious of the herbs that you're buying, you can make a huge difference in the marketplace and with the health of the native plant populations. And this can be not just the plants in our own country, but worldwide. So even like when I look at catalogs today, you know, these wonderful herb catalogs by incredible companies, and you're looking down those catalog lists of these herbs, this fantastic array of herbs that are available to us today. Looking at a lot of them, they could just be grown here so easily. I mean, there's a lot of them are weedy plants here or natives here, and we're importing them from other countries. It just doesn't make any environmental sense whatsoever. And so that is an, another step I think the herbal community and the herb industry needs to take. Not that we don't want to always, we've no matter how far you go back in history, people have, you know, had exotic foods at, you know, Christmas time. And, you know, like I remember as children, if we got like oranges that were coming from even Southern California, it was like a treat in the winter, but 90% of the food that you got was local. And today, really, probably 90% of most people's food is not local and coming sometimes from places we have no control. And that is the same with these herbs. So we will have better control, better environmental consciousness, better sustainability if we start to bring these herbs home again and grow them locally. So it's not, again, about making judgments about these products, but just the sameness of just shifting this a little bit so that we know that the plants that we're using are being cultivated locally. We know the workers are being treated well. We know they're getting decent wages. And we also know the quality of our products. We can actually judge the quality because we can see where they're being grown. And I think if we were to grow our food and medicine more locally, we would take more pride. And I think if you see the benefits of nurturing the land, it makes you want to do it even more. And it's this positive feedback loop. <laughs> I'm also so drawn to the vision of tending the wild. Yeah. To think of humans using our cleverness to enhance an ecosystem rather than deplete and destroy it. And I think it's essential in reimagining our societies. Whether you're conserving a thousand acres or a small community plot in the city, you can help biodiversity return. You can bring back native plants and invite natural disturbance patterns. You, know, you can nurture the waterways. In turn, you'll see birds and pollinators and bugs and the whole cast of characters return to that space. So well said, you know, that's just so beautifully said, Ayana. 
Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to just add, it was a thought that came as you were speaking that, you know, so often we hear that phrase and we've probably said it ourselves, you know, the plants and nature would exist just fine without us. And maybe that is true. Plants and the earth were here before humans and they, from all accounts, it was all going along just fine. But the truth of the matter is that they need us as well. And anybody who has relationships with nature and with the plants know that to be true. And so I know for myself living on this piece of land for almost 30 years, the interaction that I've had and all the people that have come here and brought prayer, brought their desire to learn, brought their passion for nature, brought their transforming spirits, all of the prayers that have been here have helped create the land that's here and reawaken the spirit. So that when people come here, even if they just get out of their car, they go, oh, it feels so magical. And I'm thinking, well, it didn't feel that magical 30 years ago. It was damaged woodlands. It was not healthy, you know, and just the, the care, the stewardship and the prayers, that conscious intention is what I see prayer is, has made a difference. And so, you know, just even on a personal level, like when you go walking in the woods, those plants are beautiful and they're beautiful whether you're there or not. But when you stop, and you look around and you embrace those plants, they just, they rise up for you. You know, they reach down for you. They, they glow in the same way that all of life glows when it's being recognized as beautiful. You know, people who communicate who plants and singing to the plants, they know that in singing to the plants, the plants sing back. Again, that reciprocal nature. And so I personally feel in my own small belief system that we're integral to nature. Nature wants us to be healthy and to be part of it. We're part of all the life. You know, I think that if we continue to live out of balance the way that we are as bad little children who haven't learned to contain ourselves, that we will probably drive ourselves into extinction. But all of nature and a huge group of wise individuals are all leading us forward. And so again, I stand in active hope that we are visibly seeing a difference. And I mentioned this to you early, when I look at the young people, you know, I have the great fortune to travel a lot and to meet groups after groups after groups. And I always say, I know there are horrible people on this earth. I hear about what they do, but I've never met them. I mostly meet these fabulous people who are so willing to take action. The more we get our hands in the dirt, I think the more confidence <laughs> it builds in us because we realize that we are so meant to do this and it's not lost it's just lying dormant this knowledge to take care of the planet as it takes care of us and if we take the time just to be and observe and rebuild that confidence again which is something i've really learned from you and your work just taking that leap of faith and trusting in our ability to to love that which gives us life Oh, you are so inspiring. I'm just inspired by your words and your being and your vision. And you know, the image that comes to me, Ayana, is um, I think about when I visit the volcanoes in Hawaii and that new earth that's being formed and it, it flowed down so hot and it destroyed everything in its path, right? But even just like two or three years later, you'll see these gorgeous plants start to emerge out of this blackened earth this new formed earth. And, you know, we can't see the end of those little plants, but, you know, if we traveled back there, like maybe 2000 years from now, we'd see the Hawaiian islands just growing with their lushness, right? That what we see now is looks like so raw and 
unformed and new with just one little plant. So those plants have this remarkable ability to restore. And they're not only restoring the earth in those ways, but they also restore our spirit. And I think that's partly why when you work with plants, you even though you have those hard days when you look at the world and things look bleak, even though you have those times, you're always restored because the power of those plants are so restorative. I always say, you, you've, I've never ever seen a grumpy gardener. You know, you could go out to your garden, you can be grumpy, a hard day, there's a lot of weeds. You start working with those plants and a peacefulness and a surety comes over your spirit. And I think that's what you're speaking of. You know, we're, we're lucky and fortunate. And I, I just would like to see the whole world, you know, be restored in that way to have that connection, that deep rooted connection with the plants that are everywhere around us, calling us, begging us to pay attention to them, really. <laughs> well, you've been a leading voice in helping people restore that connection. And I just want to thank you so much for taking this time today and bringing us these incredible insights with such honesty and such resounding purpose. Thank you so much. Yes. Really. It's been just an honor and a joy. My young and old is so fine. Sweet Rosemary did say she gathered flowers and she sang all about. I'm Ayana Young, and you've been listening to Rosemary Gladstar on Unlearn and Rewild. Today we heard an old, unreleased Cat Stevens song, I Got a Thing About Seeing My Grandson Grow Old. Then The Winds of Change by Rod McEwen. Then a song called Sunflower by Alexa Wildish. And finally, Sweet Rosemary by Sandy Denny of Fairport Convention. Our producer is March Young. Please visit unlearnandrewild.org and sign up for the Mobilized Newswire and make a donation if you can. Also, come out to the New England Women's Herbal Conference in August, where I'll be teaching this year. Thanks for tuning in. Sweet.